Chapter Fifteen of The Hall in the Grove by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Theological Review. There was one other person at that unique gathering who was an object of special interest. This was Kent Monteith, the doctor's son. None of the residents of Centerville were acquainted with him except by reputation, which was that of a scholar and traveller like his father, added to which he was a not unknown artist. Indeed, for one so young, he had achieved an enviable reputation even in Europe. This fact was well known to the Centerville public through the industrious tongue of Miss Irene Butler, who was never tired of quoting what was said of him in the art reviews. Proud was she to be even so remotely connected with an artist destined to be famous as to have a speaking acquaintance with the father, and be able to ask of him the latest news in art as reported by his son. For days together had she looked forward to this eventful evening when she was actually to have the pleasure of meeting him face to face. Indeed, he was one whom almost any person might have been glad to meet. "'He looks very like his father,' declared Mrs. Fenton, after an earnest searching of the frank face. A younger edition of his handsome father, and I am sure that flattery can go no farther, for his father is really the handsomest man I ever saw. I hope he will be half as good a man as his father, was Mr. Fenton's addition to this verdict. And when I tell you that even his own mother was satisfied in this respect, you will readily see that Kent Monteith was a man to admire more than Irene had looked forward to meeting him on this occasion. Now it happened that among them all only one young woman had been suggested to Kent as a person of interest. His father, after giving him a detailed account of the CLSC as it had branched at Centerville, and a running commentary on most of the prominent characters belonging to it, had finished after this fashion. There is one person who will be here tomorrow evening, and who is a member of the circle, that if you can find it in your heart to pay even quite special attention to, you will succeed in pleasing me. Upon my word, father, Kent had answered, laughing, that is really a somewhat startling and rather foreign than American way of managing things. Oh, well, the father answered, joining in the laugh. I am only planning for one evening, you understand, with a purpose in view, one with which you will sympathize when you hear her story. Her name is Caroline Raynor. Whereupon he began at the beginning of Caroline's story, as it had been detailed to him by Mrs. Fenton, and brought it down to the last meeting of the CLSC, when Jack Butler had distinguished himself by giving her a cool stare and no other recognition, though Mrs. Fenton herself had undertaken to introduce them. "'Now you understand,' explained Dr. Monteith, "'that I don't expect to revolutionize society, neither do I have any particular desire to do so. Society, in one sense, will take care of itself, at least in this country, by which I mean that people reach their level in due time, fill the places that they are fitted by nature and taste to fill,' and make a channel for their own lives which is satisfying. But where a person occupies for a time a niche in the world to which she manifestly doesn't belong, and out of which she will assuredly move, to recognize the accident of position and ignore the mental and moral worth is despicable, is, I beg your pardon, Kent, intensely un-American. 
which is one of your synonyms for wickedness, the son said, laughing heartily. Nevertheless, he asked many questions concerning Caroline, evinced as deep an interest in her welfare as his father could desire, and promised, without any further clue, to try to single her out from the large number of ladies who now, nominally at least, belonged to the circle. It was soon after Caroline's paper had been read that Kent bent forward to the chair in which his father was sitting, and said in a low voice, "'If I am not greatly mistaken, your protégé adds to her other accomplishments that of being a very good reader?' And Dr. Monteith, with pleased eyes, bowed assent. It was therefore with a deference that had a purpose, and that certainly was very marked, that Kent Monteith crossed the long parlour when the dining-room doors were thrown open and refreshments announced, and offered his arm to Caroline. I really think it was at that time that Mrs. Chester's eyes became opened to what was going on. Before that she had been dazed, had hardly gotten away from her industrial school idea, and kept vaguely expecting the apple and piece of cake era to commence. But to see her second girl walk out to supper with Kent Monteith, the rising young artist but recently home from Florence, was too much for ordinary flesh and blood. Mrs. Chester promptly expressed her mind to her next neighbor. "'I really think, Mrs. Howard, that these quixotic people have taken leave of their common sense.' "'Do you?' in utmost good humor. "'Well, it cannot be said that your second girl has taken leave of hers. What a remarkable paper that was which she presented! I always thought there was something quite uncommon about her, but I did not suppose she had so cultured a mind. What an excellent thing this new society is for giving people a chance!' After that outburst, Mrs. Chester turned away in dumb disgust. But the acquaintance begun in the refreshment room in utmost good nature— and, in order to further his father's wishes, was carried on by Kent Monteith because he became interested. She could converse, that was evident, for he began at once to talk with her about the Rome which had been the topic of absorbing interest thus far, to controvert some of the ideas which she had advanced in her paper. But while she steadily and intelligently held her own, she yet questioned him as to his different views in so keen a way that he speedily saw he must be clear and logical in his reasons, if he expected them to have some weight. She was not to be talked with like the average young lady whom he met in society. She knew almost nothing about society, but, without ever having seen it as he had, she clearly knew a great deal about Rome. The question was, how much did she know about other things? "'Do you think the same ideas which you have just been advancing apply to France?' he asked her suddenly, fixing a keen glance on her intelligent face the while. And if she could have seen his thoughts, they would have been somewhat after this fashion. Now, if her intelligence is all confined to one book, she will try to generalize, to say yes and no, and flounder hopelessly over that question.' He was mistaken. Her knowledge of literature was chiefly confined to one book, it is true, which she had very thoroughly studied. But she did not flounder. Instead, she fixed her calm, steady eyes upon him, and answered promptly, "'Oh, I don't know. I am not in a position to know, or even to have an intelligent opinion. I don't know anything to speak of about France, or indeed about any other part of the world except Centerville and Rome.' this with a little laugh. 
you must know that we have been working very hard over rome half the winter and of course i know a little and think a little about that country but i know nothing else she is honest he said to himself then aloud were you fascinated with rome that you held so closely to it and excluded every other country not at all i had one book that told me a great deal about rome and almost nothing about any other place and i wanted to learn all i could from that book because books are scarce with me as well as opportunities this chautauqua society is the largest chance i ever had merivale's rome could not have taught you to read he could not help saying with a marked emphasis on the last word her reading had pleased him because of its extreme naturalness no she said the ready color flushing into her cheeks i never was taught to read i read aloud a great deal to an invalid lady with whom i lived when i was a young girl and she used to correct my pronunciation but i never have had any lessons in reading may you never have he said speaking with more energy than the subject seemed to her to demand he had been the victim of many professional readers tell me about this circle he said as he helped her to an ice i was at chautauqua for a few days last summer but i don't know about the actual practical working of this scheme did you give the winter entirely to merivale oh no we left him in the distance some time ago indeed we are thoroughly interested in another book now what author is being honored now if you bring the same oneness of thought to bear on him that you must have done to Merivale, he should be a happy author. We are studying the philosophy of the plan of salvation. Theology? A little startled. I don't know. Is it theology? It is very interesting, and I don't know whether it would be called by that name. Do you like it as well as Rome? Why, there is no comparison and no chance for one of course it treats of topics away in advance of roman history i don't suppose i am a judge as to whether it is as well written as the other but of course it is more interesting why of course caroline tried to steal a look at her questioner a little in doubt as to what all this catechizing might mean but he was giving careful attention to the pickled oysters before him and his grave quiet face told her nothing why of course she said unhesitatingly whatever tells us of god and of our relations to him is of infinitely more importance than the books that tell us only of other people like ourselves how they sinned and suffered and died is that your epitome of human history but you forget that you have not explained to me anything about this latter book i know merivale's rome quite well from having listened to you this evening now what does this philosophy prove to you do you mean what view of the question does the book take isn't that equivalent to saying what view you take do not you and the book agree but never mind that question tell me what it says i am not sure that i can i should think in general that the argument was the same as that used by other writers on the same subject and what is that you do not need that i should tell you she said speaking with gentle dignity you are of course more thoroughly posted in regard to this matter than i could possibly be may i ask you on what ground you use that authoritative of course in this connection what leads you to suppose that i am better acquainted with the subject in question than yourself because you are a scholar 
you have had opportunities to study books and men and have been at work in that direction all your life while i have had almost no chances at all i cannot even compare this book with any other book of the kind because it is the only one i have ever read suppose for the sake of the argument i admit the first part of your statement you will remember that there are many books to study and many phases of opinion to choose from how do you know that i have yet had opportunity to take up this subject i do not know it i suppose i judged from the supposition that students selected the most important topics first letting secondary matters take a secondary place and this topic is first in importance i should think that there could not be two opinions about that would you mind giving me the steps by which you reached such a conclusion they are almost self-evident i think she said quietly though with flushing cheeks what has to do with my life in a world that will never end would seem to me to be of greater importance than what simply concerns the few days that i am to live on earth ah but i don't accept your proposition i believe that the knowledge we acquire here is not to be thrown away in a future existence if i am to live at all in another world i expect to keep growing wiser there and not to begin at the alphabet either but where i stopped when the soul was called upon to change homes i suppose that is true she said looking frankly at him after a moment of thoughtful silence it is a somewhat new thought to me and a very pleasant one but i think it increases the importance of the one subject because i want to be very particular about the place where i continue my studies i see he said smiling now you are ready i hope to enlighten me as to this particular book well she said trying not to be carefully literal in her reply i cannot do justice to the book but i think i can introduce you to it in the first place it states three facts to be considered that we are so made as to want to worship something or someone that we grow like the person or object which we worship and that no human means could have cured the world of the sin of idol worship do you believe the first two statements why i suppose so she said wonderingly my own heart experience as well as all history confirms the first and the second is common sense her companion laughed that is certainly a brief and comprehensive way of stating your reasons he said go on go on with what why with the book haven't you engaged to give me a review of it suppose these statements are correct what then or rather in the first place how does your author prove that we couldn't help ourselves by showing that we didn't that the idolatry of the world grew worse and worse with every succeeding generation well and the remedy the remedy was to give us a perfect object to worship and to furnish a power that should turn our hearts toward that object yes well i think i see the scope of the argument what point does your author take up next oh we went to egypt next learned why so many years of bondage were necessary to give the nation a bond of union and sympathy a bond of union is egyptian bondage a necessity in the formation of such a bond perhaps not a necessity at least i suppose some other way could have been devised had god chosen to do it but i should think it would help if you and i for instance were slaves in a foreign land far away from our mutual home suffering the same trials 
looking forward to the same release, having the same plans, I fancy we might grow daily more alienated from those who did not and could not understand us and sympathize with each other more closely every day. I am inclined to think that that is a very good argument, he said, looking down on her with curious eyes, which look, however, she lost. She was engaged in earnestly calling to her aid the arguments of the book which she was seriously trying to review. Her intense earnestness had a strange fascination for him. I'm all attention, he said at last. Why don't you proceed? Then she looked at him again, puzzled to know how much he meant. You don't expect me to give you the entire book this evening? I don't know. You seem to be doing well. I'm guessing at the filling in, you see. You are only supplying outlines. What next? Next, I became greatly interested in the miracles of Egypt. I presume it is an old story to you, but I had never heard before how perfectly the ten plagues were suited to the needs of that idolatrous nation, and how wonderfully they showed the wisdom of God. You give me credit for too much research. I don't at this moment remember a single argument in that line. Won't you give me a hint of how it was managed? The plagues used to astonish my boyhood, and I doubt whether I am much wiser in many respects than I was then. I never realized the necessity for miracles until this writer proved to my satisfaction that if the true religion when first revealed had been accompanied by no exhibition of power beyond that which human beings could exert, men would not have believed it. He declares that every leader of a false religion has recognized the necessity of producing miracles, and has tried to claim that power. Then, too, he reminded us that the Israelites seemed to believe the Egyptian jugglers capable, in the name of their gods, of performing miracles, so that the true God would need to show them that he not only could perform miracles, but that his power was not to be compared with that of the magicians. I had never known that serpents were worshipped by the Egyptians, and that when Moses's rod swallowed up the serpent which the magicians had seemed to make, it actually had swallowed what the lookers-on considered a god. Neither did I know that they considered the Nile a sacred river, and that when Moses turned its water into blood, he proved the folly of their worship. Sometimes it has seemed to me so strange that the great god would descend to showing his power in so small a way as to send swarms of flies upon his enemies. Now I know that it was my ignorance which made the miracle into smallness, for I did not know that those wretched idolaters had a special God who was supposed to be able to deliver them from flies. In what a terrible way they discovered their idol's powerlessness! What does he do with the plague of boils? When I was a youngster, that seemed to me queerer than anything else that happened to that idiotic people. That is another miracle, the explanation of which gave me a humiliating sense of my own ignorance. Caroline said eagerly. You must remember that I knew nothing about Egyptian history. I did not know about the altars for human sacrifice, nor about the awful custom of gathering the ashes of the victims and throwing them upward in the belief that wherever they touched evil would be turned aside. Think of what an object lesson it was for Moses to take a handful of ashes, perhaps from the very furnace where these human sacrifices had been burned, and throwing them into the air, let terrible disease and pain follow their touch. 
They had left the refreshment room long before the talk had progressed thus far, and had joined the promenaders who were refreshing themselves in strolls through the long parlors. They were entirely engrossed in their subject, Caroline, at least, being utterly unconscious of the fact that Mrs. Chester was surveying her with astonished eyes, and Miss Irene Butler was almost overpowered with her impatience to talk with a real artist who had studied in Florence. She interrupted them at last ruthlessly. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Monteith, but it does seem to me you have been unselfish long enough. You ought to be rewarded with a little pleasure on your own account now.' besides some of us are longing to know about your experiences in italy and i at least have been looking forward to a feast when i might have opportunity to converse with you about our beloved profession she had kidnapped the promenaders just as they were about to pass into the library the rich blood mounted to caroline's very forehead and she made an attempt to drop her companion's arm but he held hers firmly as he answered miss irene you have entirely mistaken my character. I never felt more selfish in my life. I am hearing about a book which interests me intensely, from one who has evidently made its contents her own, and if there is any one subject more than another for which I have an unconquerable horror this evening, it is my profession. I've been working hard and have come home to rest. Miss Butler, are you a member of this literary society which seems to be creating such a sensation in your midst? Miss Irene gave a very positive shake to her head, with uplifted eyebrows. Oh, dear, no! My pursuits and aims in life are so entirely removed from this line of study that I have felt very little interest in the enterprise. Besides, I suppose the design of the circle is to give an idea of what is going on in the world of books to those who have had no other opportunities. Isn't that the special aim, Caroline? It was the first time she had hinted that she even saw Caroline. Before that young woman could collect her startled thoughts to answer, Mr. Monteith saved her the trouble. Oh, I think the aim of the circle is far wider than that. I happen to know that it is considered a very valuable review of work, even for thorough students. My father, for instance, expresses himself as richly repaid in personal advantage for the amount of time which he has given to the scheme. Scholars gifted with very keen brains planned the course of study, with a view to benefiting a great variety of people. I'm inclined to think I shall find a circle somewhere to join next year, if for nothing else but the comfort of belonging to the round table. Do you know about the round table, Miss Raynor? No? Then you have never been to Chautauqua? There is a special delight in store for you. I have never been anywhere, said Caroline, simply, and I have almost as much hope of going to Europe as to Chautauqua. She positively will not pretend to have any advantages that she has not had. This was the mental comment of the young man who had set out to study her. Miss Irene held her ground firmly, resolved upon pressing the celebrated artist into communicativeness regarding his profession, but it was all to no purpose. Whether he detected the ring of affectation in her questions, or the utter meagerness of her knowledge, or whether he was really too weary of the subject to want to talk about it, Caroline could not tell. In any case, he gaily resisted her efforts, and would try to make her talk about the Chautauqua Circle, which subject she could not even pretend to understand, 
having kept herself until recently far above it. "'How do you do again?' said a fourth voice at their elbow. It was the special guest whom all the others had been invited to meet. It was to Caroline that he offered his hand, as he said in hearty tones, "'You gave us as fine a condensation of history to-night as is often put into a few pages. Monteith, how many people do you think study Merivale as this circle evidently has this winter?' "'Very few,' said young Monteith, and added, "'I have been telling Miss Raynor that there is a delight in store for her, such as she can hardly imagine.' She tells me that she has never been to Chautauqua. And that she has no idea of being there, at least for years to come, Caroline said, much confused over her position in the central doorway, held a prisoner by Kent Monteith, and talking with the most prominent personage in the company. I think I must go, she said in undertone to Mr. Monteith. Mrs. Fenton is waiting to speak to me. Is she? Which is Mrs. Fenton? I used to know her when I was a very small boy, and came with my father and mother to the old homestead. As long ago as that, Miss Raynor, this house was the old homestead. Just introduce me again to Mrs. Fenton, will you? And with a parting bow to the lady and gentleman, he passed on with Caroline, she more embarrassed than before. She had meant to slip quietly away to Mrs. Fenton's side. That was the truth, and nothing but the truth her companion said gaily when they were alone but about its being the whole truth i am more doubtful i think i wanted to get away from that indefatigable lady who wanted to talk aught to me did you ever chance to hear the way the imitation article pronounces that word miss raynor then as seemed to be his custom without waiting for a reply to the question he dashed into another subject I can't tell you how sorry I am that our review of that book was interrupted. I wanted to hear the logical progression of the argument. I'll tell you what, Miss Raynor, let me see you safely home this evening. Then you can finish the review for me, will you? Then was Caroline's embarrassment intense. She had supposed it to be a sort of accident that had given her the company of this distinguished gentleman at the refreshment table, and the gratifying of a scholarly whim to see how well one book had been studied that had prompted his persistent questioning since. But to receive still more attention from him, without acquainting him with her place in society, seemed to this painfully honest girl an impropriety. What if Professor Monteith's son should take the long walk from his father's house to Mrs. Chester's door, in company with Mrs. Chester's hired help? Caroline was sufficiently versed in the style of gossip rampant in the little town, to know that it would be a painful experiment to the young man if he were sensitive. At the same time, she appreciated his kindness and his conversation, and disliked to decline his courtesy with apparent rudeness. As often before in her life, she resolved on the alternative of entire honesty. The parlor was long, and their progress slow, surrounded as they were by other promenaders. Besides, Mrs. Fenton, eager little woman that she was, flitted twice from the station where they expected to meet her, so there was time for explanation. Caroline's voice was as quiet and self-sustained as it had been when she was reviewing Walker for his benefit. I thank you, Mr. Monteith, but it is not right that I should accept your kindness. You mistake my position. I am not in society. Not? 
repeated Mr. Monteith, with a purposely puzzled tone. I supposed you were. I have been absent from my native land for a number of years. What has that term come to mean in this region? I thought you were my father's guest. I beg your pardon. Caroline did not want to laugh, but she could not help it. I mean that I was never in society before, and do not expect to be again. It was your father's great kindness. I am not in the same circle with his other guests. You have met Mrs. Chester here this evening? I am her hired help, have been for two years, and expect to be as long as I succeed in suiting her. I know Mrs. Chester. She belonged to one of the old families that my grandfather used to tell about when I was a tow-headed boy. I remember I used to think she did not look so very old, and I could not understand why that term was always applied to her. They live in the old homestead, my father told me, or in the grand mansion that they have built in its place. Not half so fascinating a place, I'll venture, as the rambling old house was, but nearly a mile from here, is it not? Unless your author was a decidedly prosy old fellow, you will just have time to finish the review. May I walk home with you, Miss Raynor? She did not want to laugh. Her cheeks were the color of the scarlet fuchsias they were just passing but there was such a sparkle of mischief in his eyes, and such suppressed fun in his voice, that she could not help it. End of chapter 15